Welcome back to The Casual Academic, where you'll find in-depth literary discussion without the pretense. Just good books. The only fact that I was able to assimilate for a long time was the immense, the blind and brutal and annihilating event of the island's destruction. A thing so irresistible and indifferent to ordinary life that the death of the Jacobins and my own survival seemed a matter of trivial, almost frivolous lack of consequence. Eruptions and cataclysms and plagues and the colliding of planets were the only real, the only inevitable events, and the human activities that happened to lie in their path, and which are destroyed with such blind ease and ignorance, were of as little real importance as the doings of insects. How effortlessly they had all been burned up, how pointless all our passions and complications and the intricate structure of our little society now seemed. We were reduced by this juxtaposition of unbridled power and absolute impotence to the status of ants, and, by these standards, the destruction of 42,000 of them seemed as slight and fundamentally as uninteresting a matter as the fluke by which one of them had escaped. A stray ant had survived when the whole nest was demolished by a power that was unaware of the existence of either ants or nest. That was all. Explosions, floods, and ice ages, you might say, are the only true dates in history, and the improvisations of human societies between these events, art, civilization, love, wars, literature, the development and the melting of one religion into another, the movement of ideas, the migrations of power from continent to continent, have as little bearing on this basic calendar of red-letter days as a page out of Faber's Book of Insects. Then how microscopic, how minute were the feuds, the passions, the pleasures, and the vanities of the small anachronistic community of St. Jacques. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Casual Academic. My name is Jacob, at the other end of the line, and that beautiful voice you heard at the beginning of the episode reading that quote was Alex Johnson. He's over there in Zaragoza. I'm in Madrid. Alex, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, dude. I'm good. I'm affected after reading that very violent quote about the uselessness of human endeavors. But, uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking about my plans later today of cleaning my house. And I think, well, you know, I mean, just ice age is the only important thing. Why even clean the house? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but I'm, <laughs> I'm good, dude. It's a pretty nice day here in Saragossa. I'm really excited to talk about Fairmore today and the violence of St. Jacques. What about you? How you doing? I'm good, buddy. Been a productive morning. Got into the gym, got my hair cut, went to the market, did all the little things I needed to do around the house. So I'm feeling good about life and I'm excited to be talking about this. This is the first time we've recorded in 2019 and I think it's going to be a good one, man. So I'm looking forward to it. Wait, hold on. You've done all of that before we've recorded? I have. Yeah. Are you kidding me, man? God, I, I, woke I had up coffee early. and breakfast and I was proud of myself. <laughs> man, you got the gym, a haircut. Jesus, you're making me look bad. <laughs> no way i think it's more depressing <laughs> it's like wait he did that on a saturday morning <laughs> <laughs> and then they're gonna be like oh yeah he must have well, yeah, kids, I don't know, you know, in your 30s right up. i mean I, I i personally feel like shit when i when i wake up a bit hungover or if i'd gone out you know i always think oh, i've wasted the morning but uh i don't know i guess sometimes you need a lazy saturday morning too yeah i think it's i think it's necessary especially if you're oh my gosh if you're a teacher and stuff but 
Anyway, enough digressions. We're here to talk about Patrick Leigh Fearmore. I wanted to ask you before we talk about him. So I think both of us found this book in similar fashions, but we didn't tell each other about it. So how did you come across this? I was in one of the few secondhand English bookshops in Saragossa called Reread. And uh, I saw this book and the name, you know, the name's kind of uh, portentous, you know, The Violins of St. Jacques. I was like, what is this? And I picked it up, hadn't heard of the writer, read the back, and I was like, oh, wow. You know, volcanoes, Mardi Gras, violins rising from the depths of the ocean. What is this about? And I looked online. It turns out this was during our NYRB classic series. And it turns out the New York Review of Books publishes this book. I found an older edition. So I picked it up. It looked looked good. And then I told you about it one day. And then I think you had also picked it up recently as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, not recently. I actually, I must have, hmm, must have been about two years ago. Before I even, I didn't even know who the guy was, but I was at actually the community bookshop in Brooklyn, New York. I was, I got my flight delayed. And so I got to go see my sister for a day and I stopped by the bookshop and I was looking in the section and I was attracted to the New York review of books section before we had our episodes featured by them and everything. And I was taking a look and I was trying to figure out which book I wanted. And it looked interesting. I was compelled by the text on the back and I thought it'd be interesting. And honestly, I mean, if we're thinking about it, and I was thinking about this on my on my walk back to my house this morning, if the casual academic has a thing, I feel like it's reading a book about a person who goes someplace and then their life is uh, destroyed by it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I feel like this is right up our alley. <laughs> oh, it's just so casual, though. The It is casual. The destruction of the individual self in the face of implacable events. <laughs> if, if that's <laughs> I love that. that that's great I think it's a great definition of this podcast very uplifting I mean it started with Aschenbach I mean you could just choose any of the stories that we read immediately after that where life was unraveling um, <laughs> I mean it's really just <laughs> yeah. it really is just like I, if you think about it most of the books we've chosen in some way is about something going wrong with somebody I suppose that's what fiction is but anyway I know. Well, oh, good fiction. In I our thought book, it was I awesome. Guess. Yeah, that's great, man. And of course, like the story within a story, as we always talk about, right? Where mm-hmm. um, the narrator meets this mysterious French woman who tells him about her childhood in this invented island. So that's also an enticing storytelling mode that we frequently feature on this podcast as well. So the edition that I have anyways, the New York Review of Books edition, it's got an introduction by James Campbell. But before we talk about the book, I thought I could give a little information about Patrick Lee Fairmore, who has had a very interesting life. I mean, he's up there with some of the other people we read. He's not quite at the Patachki level, but I think that's its own category. Um, <laughs> but he is, yeah. yeah, it is its own level. It's its really. own level. I mean, I don't want to start talking about Patachki again, otherwise it's just going to unravel. So Lee Fairmore is fam- very famous for his travel writing, but before he started publishing things, he was actually in the special operations unit. That's not exactly what it was called, but he was a British soldier in world war two. And he led the resistance in Crete during the second world war. And for two years, he disguised himself as a shepherd on the Island and lived there and took stock of stuff. And then at the end about it, at the end of it, he wound up abducting a German general who was leading the, the German, I guess, colony there and subjugating the island and they kidnapped him and they he was able to he dressed up as ss soldiers and then he uh he kidnapped the general 
he somehow faked like they had whisked the general away by submarine, which I don't know how that is faked by any means, but he did that. And then he and this other guy took him by boat and then they took this general back to Egypt and they captured him. And it was a big victory for the British and the allies during World War II. So he was already just kind of a character at this point and a war veteran and all that. But so after that is when he got started. So he, his first book he published was The Traveler's Tree. And after the war, he went to travel in the Caribbean. And it was during this time that he wrote The Traveler's Tree. And he, the book was uh, published to wide acclaim. A lot of people said it was especially good because he was one of the first authors who was in the Caribbean, especially not from the Caribbean, and really acknowledged the influence of slavery there and said about how most of the problems in the West Indies came from the slave trade, which was pretty much ahead of its time. Also, another little fact that I found interesting about that was that apparently this influenced Ian Fleming a lot, who wrote James Bond, and he quotes that a lot in his novel Live and Let Die, which I think was the movie that the Beatles sang the song for. Is that right? Or just Paul McCartney. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, maybe it was just Paul McCartney. Yeah, you're right. But like, yeah, so I now all of a sudden I want to read one of the James Bond novels. But anyway, probably the most famous book that Patrick Le Fairmore wrote was The Time of Gifts about his travels in Europe before the war. He wrote The Violins of St. Jacques later, which is what we're talking about today. It's his only work of fiction, and that was also turned into an opera, which I think is quite appropriate. So after the war, you know, he was knighted. He became a big influence to the next generation of British travel writers. Amongst the most famous them is Bruce Chatwin. And then he lived part of his year in Greece. And his home in Greece was kind of known for being this place where writers could come. They could stay there. He would open it on his name day. He would let the villagers come in. And so he still had deep roots in the Mediterranean, I guess, after his World War II escapades there. So the guys had a pretty interesting life. And it kind of all feeds into, I think, not only just this novel, but his wider body of work. Well, there we go. I think, I think it's a great summary of, of Fairmore. One thing you didn't mention, which, which I know you're a big fan of, though, is A Time for Gifts. Which I think I mentioned that just at the beginning, but yeah, that's his like <laughs> yeah, yeah, work, and right? I think like the the inspiration for that is is really interesting too, right? When he, when he was in 1933, when he was 18, he set off from foot on foot to from Holland to uh, Istanbul. He did that walking journey, which sounds really cool, right? And everyone, if you read any article on Fairmore, everyone spends a lot of time talking about that, and uh, you know how. He wrote the book, A Time for Gifts, and I think a trilogy, right, about about that trip or about travels around Europe mm-hmm. uh, about 40 years later, I think. But he was a guy, yeah, who was just destined for an adventure. His whole life was just, <laughs> I don't know, it seems like out of a movie. In fact, they made a movie out of his capturing of the German general called Ill Met by Moonlight, which I haven't seen. Apparently, Me neither, but- Fairmore didn't like the movie, but, you know, that's that. So, a really famous guy, everyone calls him a heartthrob. Apparently he was quite, he was quite <laughs> in with the ladies. Uh, so I don't know. He was this. He was kind of a James Bondish figure, I guess. You know, this handsome British guy, well spoken, who's around the world. So a very interesting guy. And this book, his only novel. When was this published, Jake? Yeah, this was published in 1953. So eight years after the end of World War II, and this was definitely influenced a lot by his travels in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, and. When you read about this book, people celebrate it in terms of like it was this uh, sort of burst of light or burst of beauty in kind of the dull or gray or ashen British literary scene in maybe we can say post-war European scene in general. No, 
and people really it was it was really popular i think because it kind of just took everyone out of the misery of the you know of the realities of of rebuilding europe after world war ii so it was much celebrating its time the one thing i will say i think nowadays i don't really know how well known fairmore is i think for travel writing fans like yourself jake and you know a lot of people he's a household name but this book the novel itself i'm not sure how well known it is to be honest with you no i definitely agree and i think that Possibly too. It's one of those things where once a writer becomes famous for something, they become less famous for other types of works they've done. So like, for example, a lot of famous novelists throughout, I don't know, 20th century, 21st century, since the beginning, really, if they're known for their fiction, a lot of times people don't read their nonfiction or like if someone becomes really famous for their nonfiction and their like studies of things, they're also, they also might write fiction, but people don't read it so much. And so I think that that's happened with Lee Fairmore. And also it doesn't help that he only has one novel. But yeah, people, I think, probably just read A Time for Gifts, maybe finish the trilogy, look at his bio, and they're like, oh, this is cool, and that's it. And they don't realize that he's also written a work of fiction. And also I think, too, it's a slim volume. You know, I mind clocks in at like 140 pages, mm-hmm. I think. And it's really something that is easy to forget if you're not looking for it, I think, which probably has to deal with it, I think. Yeah, so... It was, you know, a chance find for me and sounds like for you too when you were in Brooklyn. And I'm I'm glad we read it. You know, as you said, it's it's a quick read. The prose itself is flowery or no, I shouldn't say okay, flowery, but not not in a bad way. <laughs> I should say. Yeah. <laughs> in general, it's it's very well written. Sometimes he overdoes it, I think, with some sentences. But the prose itself is pleasing to read. The story is is also pleasing enough. And Jake, I do believe it's your turn to give us a one-minute summary of the book. (laughs) Oh, no. Seamless transition into (laughs) putting you on the spot. Okay, are you timing me? Uh, Yeah, I got it. Great, let me just pull up the Google. No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) Unbelievable. No, okay. Okay, all right, you ready? Uh, Yeah, you, you go ahead and tell me when. Okay. So, uh, we have this traveler who is, I don't quite remember why he's there, but I believe he's on the coast of Greece and he meets this old countess that's there on the coast of Greece and she kind of lives alone. She teaches the locals painting and he's intrigued by her. So he goes and speaks to her and they have like lunches. And then one day she invites him to sleep the siesta, of course, And in the room, he sees a painting, which is ostensibly, I think, what is reproduced on my cover of the novel, which is, or maybe I'm wrong, actually. Not sure about that. Anyway, going to keep going. He sees a painting of this place, and he can tell the amount of feeling and emotion that's gone into it. And so he asks her about it. And then she unveils the story of St. Jacques about how she was sent there to educate and look after this young family of a count. And she was in charge of the upbringing and of these kids. And it all led to this time during carnival and this ball. And then the violin or the violin, the mountain explodes and the Island literally caves in on itself into the ocean. And she is the only one that escapes and she is sad, obviously. And she mourns and it's a part of her life that she'll never get back. But And she says she wishes there was some remembrance. And the end of it is the guy saying that he's like, no, I've heard tales of sailors saying that when they pass this area in the West Indies, that you can hear the violins playing at night from the last final ball. So how did I do? I feel like I missed some key points. All right. So a minute, 30 seconds. Shit. So a little long. 
Yeah. A little long, got a bit tripped up on the painting, but the painting is an important part of the book. I think in broad strokes, you nailed it. I would say just to hone in a bit more on her description of her, of her life as sort of the matron of her extended family on the island and how the family is sort of this, as I said in the opening quote, this or sort of the island itself is this like anachronistic community of sort of royalist French noblemen and noblewomen um, who live on plantations and there's sort of this idolized relationship between slaves and masters and this old world's utopia on this tropical paradise. And it's painted, yeah, in such a beautiful way. And the descriptions are so vivid of everyday life there and and the Mardi Gras, the ball itself, as you mentioned, and um, the island that you kind of get lost into it and are sort of sucked into this lazy reverie of the life there. And then, as you said, the explosion just sort of knocks you out of that spell that Fairmore casts and brings it home to the uselessness of human endeavors. <laughs> so, yeah, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I, yeah, I think you more or less got it, though. And if you had to start talking about maybe some of the big overall aspects of this book that you really enjoyed, Jake, what would those be as a reader? Well, I think especially towards the end, his passages about the volcano exploding are insane. And the ball is just great. I think you're right at the beginning. Every once in a while, you get like some extra flourish maybe about the descriptions of the people or something like that. But I think that last third, last half of the book is just crazy. Like the carnival scene, you just get sucked into it and then you get sucked into this chase. And then all of a sudden the, it's exploded and the book's over. So I think for that is, uh, is great for me. And then I think getting beyond just what, what you read in the book, I think this book is very interesting and raises a lot of questions about writers fictionalizing and writing about other places so like just just for example maybe we could start here but like in my it's not even the preface to the book it just says that as a fact this book is part of the quote-unquote explosion of west indian literature in the world post-war and i that's interesting to me there was something i wanted to talk to you about so yeah i was curious can this book be described as West Indian literature if it's written by a British guy who never lived there and just traveled there? Or does it belong to British literature? That's a good question. You know, I mean, if you think about E.M. Forrester and his book, A Passage to India, where he talks about India, is that Indian literature? Mm-hmm. I only mentioned that because I'm looking at it right in front of, right in front of me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I nowadays I don't think so. No, and um, I don't think you can consider a book that's, yeah, written through the eyes of someone who's who's not native. I mean, that's the same thing as if you think about, what's his name, Bill Bryson, that other English yeah. guy who does travel writing and kind of humorous writing about culture. And he has a book about the United States. Would you say that's American literature, right? I, I don't think so. But I think it is useful, even though nowadays, you know, it's pretty poorly looked upon to consider this in terms of its relationship to the West Indies, right? And uh, what we can learn Maybe not even so much about the West Indies, but about Europe and especially the British perspective of the of the West Indies via Fairmore and this book. That's kind of my opinion. It's it's more about learning about the mirror or not the mirror, the the juxtaposition, you know, and perspective rather than the West Indies itself. What do you think? Hold on, just before we get to that, I want to clarify. It doesn't say this is part of West Caribbean literature. I'm sorry, I don't want to misquote that, but it does say, and it says, I believe, on Le Fairmore's webpage makes the the case that it could belong to a like a group of it 
But yeah, I agree with you. I think generally, if you're going to say talk about like the identity and what's happening in a place, you can you have to be from the place uh, or have lived there a great period of time, maybe, you know. But I think what's interesting about it is that when you look through the context now, because like this book has some things now that are very disagreeable, you know, how it refers to people is clearly now in 2019, just like the casual racism that's thrown around almost, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the people. However, like we do have this other fact that is he was also this travel writer and he went through the Caribbean and he acknowledged the fact that the place was decimated and destroyed and all the screwed up relationships there were due to the slave trade. So we also know that this person isn't just going to like, he's not idealizing the plantation society, right? In terms of it being like this good thing. And in the end, he blows it all up. You know, it appears to be this great thing. It does make for like a very interesting read and how you think about it. And I also, to be totally honest, I'm not sure if I have a good answer for this, you know, but it is one of those things that I think makes it when you ask me about like what I thought was interesting. I like books that make you think because we know that the author knew more things than he's revealing in the book. That to me is like one of the inherent contradictions in the novel and one of the things that makes me want to read it and talk about it. I think you make a great point there. And in fact, one of my old English teachers in high school posted this article on her Facebook about how, you know, it's so easy nowadays to dismiss books written in the 19th century and even, of course, in the 20th century, a lot of circumstances. No, strictly because, as you were mentioning, their perspectives on race or on gender or economics or class or society and conflict, right? And it's very easy to say, you know what, no, fuck that guy because of this and that. And this article was talking about how us readers, a lot of the time, we confuse our relationship with a book and its historical context. Now, we bring the book into the present, you know, and then we judge it on our current and nowadays lens, right, and, and perspectives, when really I think what we're supposed to be doing is to sort of go back into the context of the book and not bring the book into our context. No, because if you do that then you can pretty much hate every book written ever yeah. you know, for, you know, for something in one way or another, you know? And I think it was, it's an obvious thought once you say it out loud, but I think it's something that a lot of us don't do, which is to allow ourselves to go back into the context of when this book was written. And like you said, to come back out of it when you finish it with a perspective and with knowledge of how things were and how things are, what things were accepted, what things weren't accepted, et cetera. And I think this book is a really, really great example of that. Because as you said, Fairmore himself was not a proponent of racism or slavery. In fact, his whole career was based on celebrating other cultures and, you know, trying to bring them to in the limelight, right, in in Britain and Europe. And in the case of the violence of St. Jacques, the meticulousness with which he created this world on on this fictional island and the descriptions that just go pages and pages about um, this French family and the island itself and its inner workings. The pains he went to create that, and then he just blows it up with a volcanic eruption. <laughs> I think there's much more to that than just somebody who is pining for the old colonial days in Europe. You know, I, I think there's something else working there. I couldn't agree more. Because like what you were saying, if you look at this book in 2019, like if this book were written in 2019, it would be a much different conversation. But if you look at this book in 1953, it's I, I find it clever, you know, because it's it's like this post-war idealistic colonial society where like the the aristocrats know their position their government and it's like of course oh it's this like fair guy but like he's a glorified plantation owner right it's like the most screwed up circumstance at Mm -hmm. all so like throughout the book you're like oh but he treated his slaves just a little better you know things like that it's like the classic trappings of thinking that things are better in the past than they were when it's clearly not but and it's got this setup for like things 
working out all right, you know, and it's got all the trappings in the first and second act of it being like, yeah. okay, this is going to be a thing. And then it's just like the conflict is going to be between the wealthy white people and that's going to be it, you know, and like there's this love interest and they're going to escape together or not. And it's like, really, that's not the conflict. And I think that's a very clever thing that you think is going to happen. And then literally he blows up the island. <laughs> and I, you're right, like that's yeah. definitely something. And I think that might be him playing with the reader and being like, oh, you think this is like this, Oh, like World War II just happened. Europe's decimated. It used to be so much better. Like the British colonial empire used to be so much better. And he's setting this up for people to have nostalgia for this past that sucked for most people, you know? And then all of a sudden he's like, nope, (laughs) gone, decimated into the ocean. Nothing's there. And I think that's definitely, uh, I think (laughs) you're right. Like that's definitely something that I think the reader is supposed to take away from it. Yeah, man, totally. You know, and this like sepia tinged portrait of a lost world that Mm -hmm. is irrecoverable. And Mm -hmm. the point of that, I think, is on the one hand, for Fairmore as a person and the basic information I know about him and what you've said, talking about him and his life, he seems like a guy who would probably have been very comfortable in this context. (laughs) He seems like, you know, I'm sure there's an aspect of him who does miss this, oh, things were so much simpler and, 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 uh, I don't know, better back then. And think about the portrait of the Count who's one of the main characters in this book. He's like the patriarch of the family. And he's this womanizer who has so many kids, actually with with a lot of his slaves. And he's this guy mm-hmm. who plays 20 different instruments, right? He writes plays for the yearly Mardi Gras ball. He, you know, he's like a Renaissance man, you know? And he's this handsome, devilish older man who, you know, is youthful. And for me as an American, it, it just seems like the stereotypical European jack of all trades who, you know, who can, you can forgive because he's so charming for all of the pretty much horrible things he's probably done. And that guy is just an example, I think, or, or like a, a synecdoche, I think, of, of what this book is trying to do and trying to accomplish. We're just saying, okay, yeah, we can celebrate and pine for the way things were, but like I read in the quote, none of it actually matters. And if you want to think about maybe perhaps the volcano and all of the cataclysms that the narrator talks about at the end of the book, do you think that's referring to World War II and it's referring to these mm. cataclysmic events that actually render useless and pointless all of the things that we build up as a civilization and as a people? Did you just go full allegory on me? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe um, the volcano is my mind exploding right now with your spot on analysis. <laughs> It just, Man, I, I feel like I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. That's a really great idea. Yeah, of course. Why not? And I think the metaphor is apt because you're rebuilding, but you're trying to rebuild for something better, right? Because mm-hmm. the past is not working. And it's just like, if we have the same circumstances now, when we rebuild stuff, it's not going to change anything. It's just going to, things are going to repeat. So like the fact that it's not coming back and it needs to be something different and people are displaced and need to go somewhere else, I think is like a real is a real thing that people need to think about. I can't remember the what was it called after World War II. I want to say Reconstruction, but that was after the American Civil War, during the rebuilding of Europe. Um, oh. So anyway, yeah, dude, that's a great idea. Awesome. So let's let's have a bit more into the uh, the structure of the book because, as you said, most of the book is dedicated to the the Mardi Gras ball. In fact, in my edition, so my edition is a hundred 
and 39 pages. And the ball starts on page 45. <laughs> so when you think about that, pretty much 100 of the 139 pages, more or less, is dedicated to just the ball, which is kind of crazy to think about. I think we need to think about why there was such attention focused on this ball. No, I mean, it's, it's this sort of just whirling, um, sort of dizzying 100 pages that were like everything plot-wise in the book all happens during the ball, right? Which is a bit much sometimes. But there were some parts of, of the description and of the Mardi Gras celebrations that just blew me away. And in fact, he talks about the black population of this island that kind of bursts into the Count's manor during the party and they start dancing and do this big uh, performance. That was one of my favorite parts of the book. I don't know. For me, that's where his writing really came through, which you, who's, who's a bigger fan of travel writing, it seems like he was in his element, as you would say in Spanish, he was in his sauce, right? Uh, when, when dis- <laughs> God, that sounds terrible in English. <laughs> when writing about uh, how this descriptive passages of these um, cultural events and, and performances and activities, right? And I wondered if, if you also saw that sort of shine through in the book as well. Oh, definitely, man. And I think that those, like, that's why maybe the buildup isn't quite as, as great as like the ball and then what happens after, because I just feel like reading it, like he must've attended some ball, no. And he must've seen a volcano explode. (laughs) I mean, those (laughs) are my conclusions. I have no idea if that's true or not, but it just seems like they're so spot on, you know? He also does like, I believe it's something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like the ball has its, is its own story in itself. It has its own rhythms and ebbs and flows and it's got its own acts and I could see why that would translate to the stage and or like if it's not an opera, then like a play or something. And the ball part has its own like ebb and flow of the story. And it's it's cool, you know, and it's like different. We always talk about different layers upon layers upon layers. But it's like the story is a story within a story. And then the ball is its own story. That's just uh, it's a really neat trick. But, yeah, I think that the part where he's talking about the ball and the explosion, I'm just kind of like, yeah, he did he see this? Did he witness this? I know. Exactly. I've never seen a volcano explode except on like a Werner Herzog documentary. But yeah, man, he must have seen it in person. And I mean, so in my edition, more or less, there's on like page 55, that's when these parades sort of burst into the house. And I mean, the description is unreal, man. And I kind of want to read it, but I mean, it's it's pages and pages, right? I'm trying to find a good... Do you remember the snake charmers too? That was crazy. Um, yeah, that was one of his sons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was like this pretentious sort of sort of thing, right? I just want to read a one part about this language that this descriptive language that kind of blew us away. And this is when he's describing when yeah the black population comes in, which is this Mardi Gras and carnival in general is the sort of role reversal and this sort of class reversal where you know the lower classes become the kings for a day and etc. So that's reproduced here. And here we go. He says. Um, Half a dozen black dominoes were scattered among the rest. Human bats came beating in with large ribbed wings, pursued by leopards and tigers and jaguars whose faces were covered by the animals' masks, while the skins flew loose behind them. Round their waists were kilts of sugarcane and balsier. Mummers riding paper horses and hippopotamuses and dragons and giraffes, all vividly caparisoned. I don't even know what that word is. Caparisoned? Hold on. Sorry, all vividly caparisoned came prancing and rearing after them. Their steeds were built out of the hoops round their waists, and dummy human legs sat astride them in saddles and stirrups. The riders' real legs and the four punitive ones of their mounts 
were concealed by gaudy housings fringed with little bells that swept swirling and tinkling to the ground as they caracoled along. A number of masks wore stag antlers and buffalo horns which rose above their heads of their fellows like the crests of condottieri, and one or two wore carved and painted wooden heads with alarming and slanting eyes outlined in white paint. Gaping mouths were armed with long white tusks, and yellow manes of plated straw and palm trash trailed down their backs. At the core of the masks danced two tall figures who seemed to hold some particular sway over their companions. One was a well-known sorceress and practitioner of Kimbo, the black magic of the islands, Maman Zeli, a hollow-cheeked crone in a white turban and a white dress, festooned in saltier with necklaces of colored shells and beads. I could continue, <laughs> but I mean, like, <laughs> what a description, man. Just yeah, let me just finish you. that. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, let me just finish that because it just says the last part is he describes the devil king dressed wholly in scarlet. A blood red mask covered his face and his tall square cap, which was surmounted by a great flickering lantern, was adorned on each of its sides with a looking glass and fringed all the way around with horses tails. Man. And it's just like this crazy. Well, you can imagine it. It's like carnival. It's yeah. kind of nuts. Yeah, man, the descriptions are great, and just keeps going and going, talking about the dancing and I mean, that sort of thing. And I guess maybe from a narrative point of view, it just kind of whisks you along, no, with the with like the unerring rhythm of the of the party and the drinking and the music, and it's really well done. I think it's one of the most accomplished parts of the novel, and just for that alone, I think it's worth reading. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more, and especially towards the end, it just it even takes it up a notch. Uh, one thing that you reminded me of was that. I listened to the short, I think it was a radio program, but I downloaded it on a podcast. And it was with an interview with people who edited his last book that he never finished. And they were Colin Thurban and Artemis Cooper, who are very famous authors in their own right. And they were talking about how, mm-hmm. although he influenced the generation of travel writers, they all differed for him because his prose was very verbose. And he used all these terms, like when you were reading that you're like, wait, what is that? Can you use, is caracol the verb? Like, I don't even know what these things <laughs> yeah. are. Like it's, it's an older style, you know, that reminds you more of the early 1900s as opposed to the later 1900s. And then people like Bruce Chatwin and other people, while they did use descriptive language, it was much more peeled back than than this guy. So I think it's not just, even though it's a short book and you kind of get sucked in and it goes by quick, it is one of those things that you, it's not necessarily as easy to read as you would think it would be by a person who's just you to describing things because it's like, he uses all sorts of words. I'm, it's great as a reader. Because you're like, oh man, this guy knows his thesaurus. But it doesn't seem out of place either. You're like, okay, I get this. Like, this is the word to describe how these people are dancing at Mardi Gras. Exactly, right? It's a great use of this, um, I, don't, I don't know if you could say archaic or invented language, you know, in English, where even if you don't really know what caracol means, I imagine it means like to snail along, like in Spanish, maybe, I don't know, or like to slide along the floor. But exactly, it, it just creates an ambiance, right? Or an environment more than you having to understand every word. It's more about expressing a feeling and a, and, uh, and a sense he's very successful with. Is there more to mention when you talk about like the structure of the book, how during Mardi Gras, you have like the illicit love affair, the lepers that storm into the party, oh, um, right. the royalists versus the, right? And then you have like the royalists versus like the new governor, those political tensions. You know, you have also Sosten who's in love with birth, so you have all of these things happening, and then all of it just gets cut off. So maybe, I don't know, you know, this book talks about how, uh, you know, inhuman forces make all of this useless and futile. Is there anything else we can salvage from that? I think a lot of it seems to me, 
like a reflection of what people saw and maybe how horrible World War II was, which is something we've talked a lot about in regards to like World War I because with modernists, I think we've touched upon people's lives who have, you know, lived through that war. But I think in World War II, we haven't so much or maybe I'm missing something. But I think that Mm -hmm. when you look at this guy writing after this, you know, he clearly he wanted to get away. He traveled through the Caribbean. He kind of was probably thinking about what he lived through during because he served in the service. I believe it was 1940 to like 46 or something. And he must have seen all these tragedies. You know, while he was in Crete, I believe it was Himmler before Himmler wasn't the guy he abducted, but Himmler was there. who was known as the butcher of Crete or something. And just all these massacres and people dying and like all the horrific things people have seen, you know, and just dealing with that level of inhumanity. And I think that, you know, that quote you read, I think is the crux of the book because we have these intrigues and these things that used to be important. These things that people, especially I think in the, like the British, the French, probably like the colonial empires, you know, all these things that were so important, the intrigue, the palace, the ball. The ball is just totally artificial. You know, these are things that royalty mm-hmm. invented so that they could have a good time, you know, and pass their leisurely lives. And he's like, all this stuff does not matter, right? Not yeah. anymore. Yeah. And not I think anymore. this is somebody who's mm. dealing in fiction with how everything that people took for granted is now being reevaluated. And I think that he, it, in this book at least, I feel like it's a little pessimistic, not a little, it's very pessimistic, and about how none of this matters because a crazy person, with crazy ideology and a demagogue can get into power and then millions of deaths happen. And it's like, how did this happen? Was it worth it? While we were playing house in our colonies, we, you know, (laughs) we, a right. We're subjugating native populations and just committing atrocities of our own. But we thought that brought us wealth and riches and all this stuff, but really what did it bring us? But this tragedy on a massive scale. And so I think that's him looking back at dealing with the new reality of the world in in the post-war. Yeah, man. I think so. I think it's very, very well said. Wow. A great point. And also, if we look at it from like a literary point of view, I mean, like, maybe he's making a statement about fiction as well and writing because, I mean, the book itself has a very 19th century feel to it. No, all of the intrigues you mentioned are just seem like straight out of like a 19th century romance and the structure as well. No, and and all of the interlacing stories. And maybe he's posing a question of like, well, okay. If this sort of storytelling that uh, gripped, you know, the reading public for a long time, if this has been destroyed, this has been swallowed up by um, the, you know, millions of deaths in World War II, or in this case, a volcano, then where are we supposed to go now in terms of writing? What are we supposed to write about? What matters now? Yeah. What, you know, and I think it's a really good question because, of course, there are still novelists today who do write like this. You know, a lot of people... Or a lot of novelists who are considered literary even are ones who just interlace six different tales um, into one. You know, Marquez is one of them that, that comes to mind. And I think it's a really good question, right? And I, and I think it's a question that maybe a lot of postmodernists are, have been trying to answer. Tons of writers who we've featured on the podcast or haven't, you know, who um, are trying to answer that question. Not necessarily because Fairmore posed it, but I think it's, it was a very good question in post-war Europe. And I don't know if the book itself was meant to be sort of a brief reprieve from the kind of dull the doldrums of post-war literature, or if it was more of a thinking man statement in terms of the future of, of arts and letters.
you know, maybe if you think about why people do travel writing and, you know, kind of what, what drives people to write about foreign lands and different parts of the world is maybe <laughs> this fear that cultures can disappear very quickly, you know, and um, things can change in a matter of, I don't know, not three years in the case of you know Germany or World War II, but things can change really quickly. And maybe it was the nonfiction, as you were saying, is a way to preserve something from being swallowed up you know, by natural or human disaster. And one thing I realized is that I'm woefully ignorant on travel writing. So thank God you're here today, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I've added to that, but... Well, I think if you just think about it in terms of travel writing is nonfiction about other places, you know, it's kind of like he, he was, I, I wonder, this is very Sabaldian, you know, but he must have, you know, he lived for part of his life in Greece. He was spent a lot of time in that part of the world and he was implicated in it after his actions in World War II. And so I wonder if he's there and he's choosing to write nonfiction and he's choosing to remember how life was and how his life was just to keep in mind that historical memory of like what had happened, what could happen. And maybe it's him coming to terms to it. You know, one of the things I realized is that there's not a lot of stuff about this book at all. And like a lot of the things that we found on it, we found a couple articles. Of course, our Patreon members are going to get mm -hmm. those way before you've heard this podcast. But the, uh, you know, like a lot of the stuff I found were just like people's blogs reacting to it. Yeah, me too. And some of them were interesting and some of them were just like classic Orientalist novel. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of like, uh, you know, you're kind of wondering if people maybe have studied this a little bit more and where to find it. And it would be interesting to talk about it. Cause I could, I could see you making the case of it being like him exercising his demons, you know, like what you said about world war two and all this stuff makes sense, you know? So I think in that vein of conversation, it almost has to be, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. You know, and I think once you read it that way, it's impossible to, you know, reduce it to, as you said, an orientalist novel. And that was actually one of my first reactions when I finished. I was like, Oh, it was good, but you know, Definitely wouldn't fly in like post-colonial, you know, <laughs> literary circles or in our context today. And then I remember that article I'd read about, well, you're not supposed to bring a book out of its context, but to go into its own. And then, you know, going from there, I, I think you can definitely make the case. And it is true, man. In the research, there's very little on this book. As you said, two blogs, the Guardian travel page. What is this one? This one is the Telegraph, the Spectator, right? But it's mostly about him as, as a writer. No, sorry. Him as a traveler and, and a travel writer, Literary Hub, I think, published an article as well. But on this book itself, in terms of where it was in his life and British literature in general, I think that's overlooked. And maybe it's an article in the making for the Casual Academic website. Who knows? Ooh. Who knows? Empty promises, and, as usual. But, uh, yeah, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. One of us should write that. Yeah, that's true. That's, um, that's for sure. Well, yeah, man, I think this is one of those books that, yeah, like my first reaction was similar to yours. And then the fact of it being that the more you think about it, the more, you know, something just kind of like gnaws at you because you think mm -hmm. about like, what are the writer's motives for writing the book? What are people, why in that context thinking about it in, you know, post-war? And it's one of those novels that evolves the more you think about it. And it's like, it's, it was great to talk to you because it's just like, this, these types of things are the things that. The, the more you think about it, the more complex I think it gets your understanding of this. And I can see how the knee jerk reaction would be one thing, but like the more you talk about it, the more you think that this brings up some pretty interesting issues. Mm -hmm. 
So, would you recommend this book to our listeners, to our fellow casual academics? Oh, I would definitely recommend it. I think it's well worth the time. And I also think one of the benefits, you know, I don't want to page length has never scared me. But, uh, you know, for people in their busy lives, I think this could be an excellent book to pick up. You know, you can it goes quick. It's challenging, though. It's not like a thin volume that does it like we talked about with the vocabulary. And I think it's great. And also, I would I'd be interested to our listeners reaction to this book and what they think of it, because I think it's one of those things that it's a good starting point for a conversation. I couldn't agree more, man. In fact, those of you who are listening, please join the conversation. Um, you know where on, on our Patreon page on email, Facebook, Instagram, because I I think this book is worthy of conversation and to look beyond, like you said, the knee-jerk reaction and to think about where it stands in a historical sense of the word. So yeah, guys, write to us about your opinions on on Fairmore. If you've read his travel writing too, I mean, recommend to us some of the books you've read and, and that you've liked. So, and also, Jake, I think we should feature, I've always wanted to read Bruce Chatwin. I think, um, you know, In Patagonia is a book that yep. is is on our list, right? as well so be prepared for more episodes on travel writing in the future yeah that's true i mean chatwin now has been in the crosshairs of many of the books that we've read from sabal to this one i think a couple others that's right any last thoughts or ideas no man been a great conversation good to talk to you we hadn't gotten to chat that much about this book before the episode but i really enjoyed the conversation i hope our listeners did and stay Mm -hmm. tuned to more stuff subscribe on patreon and for our Patreon members, don't forget that you will have exclusive access to our episode on the two short stories you voted for. Those being Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour and Heinrich von Kleist's The Earthquake in Chile. So thanks again for voting for those two stories and stay tuned again for that episode. And for those of you who are not Patreon members, uh, we encourage you to go check out our website and you'll not only get access to these voted for episodes, but also emails sent to you with all of our sources and um, some updates and news. So we encourage you guys to go do that. All right, man. Good talk today. Nice hearing from you, buddy. Have a good rest of your weekend. Hope everyone's doing well and they had a great Valentine's Day. Yeah, man. Likewise. Likewise. Sorry, you cut out a bit there. But enjoy your weekend. I'm going to go repaint my bathroom and uh, (laughs) we'll, (laughs) we'll talk soon about Kleist and Chopin.